What Jen Squeeze has been concerned about over some time is that our politics and our institutions have unintentionally been more focused on getting it right for us later in our life course and not leaving as much as those who are getting older inherited for those who follow in their footsteps. We're trying to address those issues in terms of let's not cannibalize the housing market so it doesn't leave affordability for young people today, those who walk in our footsteps. Let's make sure we invest in things like childcare. Gosh, climate change is a critical kind of debt that we just can't be leaving for those to inherit today and kick down the road. And all of that means that we need to have better budgets federally and provincially. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith. And with our federal budget soon to be tabled on April 19th, this episode is focused on the idea of generational fairness and how that idea should be translated into the budget process. My guest, who you just heard a clip from, is Paul Kershaw. Paul is a professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health and the founder of Generation Squeeze, an organization focused on fairness for younger Canadians and one that I've worked together with in my role as an MP to help bring a generational lens to pass federal budgets. Paul and his team at Gen Squeeze make a compelling case that younger Canadians are earning less despite greater credentials and face much larger costs related to education, housing, and childcare. Speaking of which, you won't see it in listening to this episode, but at one point in our conversation, my four-year-old Mac joins me, so you will hear Paul reference that. Of course, having kids does bring this generational question into real focus, from climate change to increased public debt to a lack of affordability for the basic necessities. Are we leaving the next generation with more or less opportunity? Paul, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into some of the specifics as it relates to housing and childcare and climate change, you have written in the Canadian Journal of Public Health about trends in public finance as between generations pointing to the time period, I think it's between 1976 and 2016. Walk me through how young Canadians 40 years ago managed to get by, but also were looked after by their governments in comparison to 40 years later. Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, we go back to the mid-1970s for our comparisons because that's when today's baby boom population was, uh, you know, starting out as young people. And so the questions that we ask in Gen Squeeze is like, what's it like to be a young person today by comparison with what's it was it like when today's aging population was young? And by contrast, we also want to know what's it like to be an older person today by comparison with older folks several decades ago when today's old people were starting out. And that's a really important time comparison to take into consideration because what it shows is the following. For today's young people, despite going to post-secondary more than ever before and paying more for the privilege to do so, they land jobs that pay thousands of dollars money less than did the same age person earn four decades ago for the same amount of work. They earn thousands less, even though today's housing prices have gone up dramatically. And so that means that hard work doesn't pay off for young people today like it did back in the day because our major cost of living is leaving our earnings behind. That's bad from the standpoint of a younger dynamic. But the high and rising home prices has been really good for those who got in the housing market some time ago. And now I'm in kind of the middle of that. Like, take my example. Over the last couple of years, I've made hundreds of thousands of dollars of wealth from my home while sleeping, cooking, watching TV, way more than I make as a hardworking prof at the University of BC. We have seen for younger people that hard work has been paying off less, while those who have got into that, in particular, the housing market some
some time ago have been getting some windfalls, which are, you know, are pleasant and whatnot, but they create tensions in the housing system. And that's, that's what the market's been doing. The market's been not having hard work pay off as much for young people. We can then ask, how, has our, how have our governments responded? And what the paper that you, sh- you were mentioning about in the Canadian Journal of Public Health was showing is that our governments have been much more focused on adapting urgently to the financial needs of our aging population by comparison with what they're doing for younger folks. We have increased the amount of money needed to cover old age security for an aging population in a much more urgent way than we have, say, invest in childcare or post-secondary to address the ways in which those have become growing needs for the younger generations. And similarly in our country, and this is especially the case at the provincial level, we are a country that's so proud about medical care. And so if we grow anything first in terms of public investment in this country, it tends to be medical care and old age security. Both of those things are things we consume later in our lives. And we've then often said as we're using economic growth to increase those things, to sustain those things in the face of an aging population, that then the cupboard is bare when we're thinking about what's left over for other important issues facing younger people. And that dynamic is the the key issue that Gen Squeeze is trying to focus on, because it plays out in a range of spaces, whether it's housing or investments or climate change, it's not necessarily intentional. There's no parent or grandparent out there saying, I want to really leave less for those who follow in my footsteps. But government institutions are big and complicated and have momentum when they were built some decades ago. And newer things like childcare doesn't really have you know, much of an institutional momentum. And you know, back in the day, people were just consistently happy, happy when home prices were rising and rising and rising. Until now, we recognize that was great for one generational cohort, but it's terrible for their kids and grandchildren. And so reversing course or stalling or changing course is more challenging. And that's why we don't see as much of that happening in our public policy at the government level as quickly as we need to see it. So let's walk through a few of those more concrete issues, starting with housing. You have ridden through Gen Squeeze for a homes first approach, namely housing should be a place to call home, not a way to get rich. I've had a conversation recently with John Pasalis and Mike Moffat in terms of the what feels like a housing bubble, at least here in Toronto, and how we might bring policy measures to bear to address that. How should policymakers be thinking through this really difficult issue because it's intractable in some ways. Those who are in the market, who have benefited, when we look to bring prices back down to some level of affordability, we're obviously impacting their equity, which one would think is okay. And so far as they've seen massive windfall gains in a very short period of time, some correction ought to be expected and ordinary and and I think fair as a bottom line. But the politics are are quite challenging to that all the same. How should policymakers be thinking through affordable housing issues and, and delivering affordable housing? Well, first, we have to become clear on the goal. And the goal needs to be that if, if affordability is a priority for us, then we don't want home prices to rise any more faster than local earnings. And in the near term and medium term, we actually want them to stall 
to give earnings a chance to catch up and maybe we'd even tolerate some dip. Of course, a really massive crash causes a whole range of other challenges in our economy and puts at risk those often younger folks who struggled to get in the market more recently who have especially large debts in their mortgages and they could be at particular risk if you know the housing market were to crash. And so let me just repeat that again. We need our politicians to become clear that the goal for the housing system specifically is for home prices to not rise anymore, at least not faster than earnings. That's a massive cultural shift because when you listen to the news media talk about what's happening in the housing market, the housing prices are recovering when they're rising. They're healthy when they're high and rising. It's crazy to to say that housing prices are recovering when they're going up. Housing prices would recover when earnings were catching up. Housing prices would be healthy when they stall. The national housing strategy has a great name, a place to call home. I just wish it did add that next phrase and not a way to get rich because we can't have both. If we want our home prices to be a good return on investment, that means we want them to grow faster than people's earnings. That means we're baking in systematically unaffordability into what we want out of the system. And given that we have seen that even a pandemic-induced recession is insufficient to actually slow down home prices in our country, we need to now acknowledge that while it may be unintentional, Our housing system is actually designed to grow home prices out of reach for local earnings. And I'm now saying, and you know, people in Gen Squeeze are saying, please, politicians and members of our housing ecosystem more generally, let's acknowledge that we don't want that anymore. That can't be the goal. And so as we're growing out of the pandemic and we're designing our next budgets, we need to do so with the goal that policies will aim to stabilize home prices. We can't count on rising home prices to be driving the economic growth we then want to help us get out of this very large deficit we've incurred from the pandemic. We need to find other industrial sectors to grow faster and leave home prices not such a big part of our growth strategy. There are a range of policies to do that. There's no silver bullet, but here's four quick categories. One, we've been relying on historically low interest rates to fight the pandemic-induced recession. We need to have more of a conversation about the way that this monetary policy is unintentionally causing collateral damage in the housing system and inflating home prices. Two, we need to think about how do we overcome nimbyism and uh, create ways to build more supply, especially the right kinds of supply in co-ops and in purpose-built rental that have enough rooms for families with kids to raise their children. Three, we need to be thinking about as we stall home prices, if in fact they dip, if they dip a lot, how do we protect people who are especially at risk of being over leveraged? And fourth, we need to acknowledge that our tax policy right now privileges housing wealth in ways that we, we don't shelter other kinds of assets from taxation. And the very fact that we shelter housing wealth from taxation means that we incentivize people to treat their housing not only as a place to call home, but as a way to make a good investment return. We create ways incentivize people to think that way. And so it's time for us to think about as we're talking about taxing wealth more in society, and that is definitely gaining momentum, that's important. Let's have housing wealth in that category for conversation. And let's think about how we target people like me who are definitely in the top 10% of homeowners in terms of the wealth we have in our properties. How could you ask me to contribute a little bit more in terms of that asset that I have? Much of it has grown because of windfalls that came while I was sleeping and cooking, et cetera. So we can reduce tax pressures on earnings for middle and lower income Canadians and have more money to invest in housing, childcare, and the farmer care that people are looking for. And how do you see the different levels of government then getting together to make this work? Because one challenge, it seems to me, 
when we talk about housing policy, the federal government could, in the coming budget, deliver additional dollars through the national housing strategy to build out supply and to ensure that we're a partner with provincial and specifically municipal governments in doing so. We could potentially address the tax side of the equation as it relates to starting with potentially the way New Zealand has taken a focus on investors. We could increase the stress test as it relates to investors, and we could potentially change the treatment of capital gains as it relates to investment properties at a minimum to, again, change the way we think about housing away from just another class of of goods that, that folks can invest in and get rich from to a basic necessity. When it comes to addressing NIMBYism and, and some of the other challenges that you lay out, even, even when we want to address money laundering and so beneficial ownership registries, much of that action would then be at the provincial level as relates to housing, at least. Do you think one of the challenges has been just all levels of government haven't been on the same page? And do you think this is now a moment where the housing piece, at least at a minimum, people are recognizing at all levels, this is a challenge that needs to be addressed? I don't know. Do you sense momentum on the policy front? Well, definitely something started to shift in 2016, where you had the tone of the dialogue in places like Metro Vancouver, the GTA, BC and Ontario and federally starting to acknowledge that, oh, just the incessant increase in home prices isn't necessarily a good thing. Then you had two provinces, BC and Ontario in particular, make some significant changes. Um, That made sense. They were the two most expensive places. And then we also did have a national housing strategy, uh, which we hadn't had before. And so we needed a bit of time to give these policy measures an opportunity to have an influence on the housing system. If you come five years later, What we see is those have been important policies. They have been necessary policies, but they're not sufficient to actually address the problems. Still, the problems at a scale that's outpacing those policies. And now we need to create, I would argue, groups like Gen Squeeze are trying to create political cover so that our politicians can be courageous to act on the evidence that what we're doing so far is insufficient. If of housing affordability is our, our an objective and if generational fairness is an objective. And what do you think about a focus on the middle class? So in 2015, we talked a lot about the middle class. In 2019, we talked a lot about the middle class. If you were to search Hansard for the words middle class, you'd probably find those words coming out of the mouth of the prime minister and various ministers and parliamentarians from at least the Liberal Party, but I expect other parties too, to a large degree. And is it not fair to say that middle class, younger Canadians who aren't yet in the housing market are worse off than they were in 2015? Oh, absolutely. Focusing on the middle class is a perfectly reasonable thing. To, it's important. It's, you know, a big part of the population. And, and also you have the tagline and those working hard to join it. Also really great. You have, in fact, also talked about wanting to ask those who have more affluence to contribute more. You've tended to focus only on earnings and miss that actually what's really driving inequality at the upper echelons of society is wealth. And so it's nice that there's growing momentum there and housing is the most kind of most common kind of wealth that people have. So we need to put it in there. And by the way, the national housing strategy never once mentions the word wealth. It is its fundamental flaw. The new version of the national housing strategy has to acknowledge the fact that rising home prices have benefited many. So let's acknowledge the winners and losers on that front. However, the the focus on the middle class needs to intersect that with an age analysis. The escalation in home values has made a middle class that got into the housing market some time ago better off than they would have otherwise been. It has really been a benefit for people like my mom who have retired in the not so distant past. She had more affluence as a retiree than like her, her parents did before her. But for her kids and grandchildren, 
the growing gap between earnings and home prices is hollowing out the middle class and fundamentally eroding expectations of what we can purchase with actually full-time work in our urban centers. That's the place where the Liberal Party of Canada really has a chance right now to make good on its genuine concern about the middle class. We need to bring this age analysis in so we insert a conversation about how do we make the country work well for all generations. And that means we're gonna to need to be more aggressive on what's going on with the climate plan, for sure. And you know, thank goodness the Supreme Court did reinforce that your brave plan to put a price on pollution was constitutional. Kudos to the government for doing that is massively important for intergenerational fairness. We need to start tackling this housing issue. And you know, we can't let patterns unfold as they have so long done again most recently in the fall fiscal update. We saw in response to the pandemic, a commitment of substantial new money to say something like long-term care facilities, which is critical. My grandmother lived in one for years and there are shortcomings that we've seen through the pandemic. But then there was great language about how we need to have childcare address the she session that's unfolded as a result of the pandemic. And you know what? There was next to no new money. Now that is an ongoing tension. Why did we find new money in the fall fiscal update for long-term extended care for those who are older, but not more money for childcare for those who are younger? We need both and not either or. And so we have to recognize you're so bang on. We need your voice in the House of Commons to say that the middle class is eroding for a younger demographic. And that desperately needs to be a priority point of focus going forward because no parent who's getting later in their life, no grandparent wants to leave a legacy where their economy and the public policy response is actually eroding the way that hard work pays off for their kids and grandchildren. But that's our dynamic now. Housing, obviously, is a huge expense for most young families, for all families, including young families. Childcare, though, is principally a huge expense for young families and only young families. And in Toronto, we're looking at $20,000 a year for a childcare spot. And again, you imagine your middle-class family impossible for a low-income family in some ways, and then someone does have to make a decision to stay at home. Even for a middle-class family, you're looking at really tough decisions about, can we afford to send our kid to childcare? Am I working for effectively free to send my kid to childcare when you think of after-tax income? When I look at Jen Squeeze's budget submission, the housing asks are fairly soft in some ways. You're highlighting some things that the government's got underway, but your childcare ask is quite significant. And I've heard Minister Freeland say that we're going to invest significantly in childcare. So it may well be that your ask is realized. But what do you want to see the federal government do as it relates to investing in childcare? I want the federal government to recognize that it could find $10 billion in the next budget in one single year to add to childcare to make it so that the cost of childcare would never cost more than $10 a day anywhere across the country, and that it would be less for households with incomes below 40000 uh, and that we would also set aside money to ensure that the people working as essential workers in that surface get pay equity level wages. That's what we need to do, because right now, childcare costs the equivalent of another rent or mortgage size payment on top of the fact that younger folks are already being crushed by higher housing prices as renters and aspiring owners. And when they get into ownership with massive levels of debt that then the governor of the Bank of Canada is worried about. And so it is harder 
from an intergenerational standpoint to fix the housing system, because as you mentioned at the beginning of our podcast, were home prices to drop by tens and tens of percentage points, that would be great for people who wanted to get into the housing system. But it would hurt people who had been in those systems for a while and counting on the increased equity for their plannings for their future, et cetera. So there's going to be a sweet spot where we're likely to say we don't want home prices to rise any longer, stall, maybe a bit of falling in the short term. But we have to expect younger people to take on larger housing costs going forward than the aging population did when they were young. And as a way, and we're doing that as young people to protect the equity of our parents and grandparents. That's kind of a generational leaning. And just as during the pandemic, a younger demographic has disproportionately been allowing our, our incomes and our access to jobs and so and what I call our social determinants of health to erode as we've been trying to prevent the spread of a virus, which for the first months were much more risky for an older population. Again, a lovely moment of intergenerational solidarity leaning in. But then we need our politicians and our older demographic to also lean in and say, oh, if you're going to be making sacrifices for us in terms of incurring higher housing costs, we can make sure that some of our tax dollars go to making other rent size or mortgage size costs in your lives go down. And at the top of the list, childcare would be that. It is the most expensive cost beyond housing facing families with young kids. It has a huge gender dynamic as well. It is definitely contributing to our not realizing our potential to promote the feminist vision that Prime Minister Trudeau has. And Canada continues to be amongst the very bottom of the international barrel when it comes to funding this essential service of childcare. That's why Gen Squeeze got started thinking about family policy. How do we make childcare affordable? How do we make time at home following the birth of a baby affordable for moms and dads? Uh, how do we get better work-life balance? And how do we do that in a context where housing is crushing people's bottom lines? And we've wrapped around that a concern with generational debts, both the debts that the government of Canada and provincial governments are leaving for young people to potentially pick up. So the monetary debt, along with the environmental debt. There's got to be a way that we can be good stewards. And that is what I, well, I know that about you, Nate. The fact that the government of Canada has now institutionalized some age analyses of the federal budget on an annual basis has in no small part been facilitated by your opening up doors for Gen Squeeze to bring our knowledge mobilization to government decision makers. That work still needs to carry on. It's not strong enough yet. Well, we'll pause, pause there because that's, a, uh, I think, when we look at overcoming potential political hurdles. That idea of education borne out by just more available information through the budgeting process is critical. And if anyone were to turn their minds to your Canadian Journal of Public Health article, one data point that I find absolutely fascinating is to the conversation around childcare is spending on younger Canadians has not kept pace with economic growth. And if it had, an additional $19 billion per year would be available for programs for younger Canadians, which would obviously more than pay for a national child care program and then some. And so this notion of generational budgeting can have significant impacts. The more data points like that that we have, the more we understand how much old age security is going to continue to grow over the coming years and how that will impact our bottom line. And it can be challenging, though, because it can feel a little bit zero sum. But before we get to the winners and losers argument and how you get past that, let's start with the importance of generational budgeting and what what more you want to see out of federal budgets from a generational lens. Yeah, this is critical. So it was historic that a couple of years ago, this federal liberal government introduced for the first time age analyses of the new investments in the federal budget. It was great. 
to address the very dynamic we're witnessing on the screen right now, which is getting it right for younger generations, parents and their kids. And so well, the problem that we have right now is the age analyses look at each tree, each new tree that the federal budget plants, but misses the overall picture of the forest. And so, for instance, uh, just next week, we're going to have the next federal budget. And I, and I am almost certain that it will not report to Canadians that uh, really the biggest planned part of the annual increase will continue to be old age security. That's been the biggest increase in the federal budget every year for the last many years. And there's never been a data point about that in a press release from your government or the governments that came before you. So we need that to actually start happening. We need, just like we have a GBA plus analysis, what they tend to do is they say, hey, this is a new program that will help you know, women in this way, or this is a new program that will help young people in this way or racialized people this way. But we need the budget to do a summary of like, what does the overall budget look like? And if we are growing funding per person in the state from a generational perspective, someone over who's a retiree by like thousands of dollars a year, but we're only growing spending for someone under 45 by like tens or hundreds of dollars a year. That's just a bad intergenerational trade-off. And it's not actually a trade-off that politicians want to make. When I go and ask politicians if they're aware of these trends, more often than not, they are not, including the few days immediately after the budget when you have to vote on it. And so we desperately need to improve that. And here's a place where I've learned, this is getting wonkish, but since you're an inside baseball person on the Hill, finance only ever reports on new legislation and how that will change a budget. Treasury is responsible about how programs created in the past will continue to play out in the face of demographic changes. We need Treasury to be much louder about the impact of our changes to old age security going forward. Your budget is going to show that over the next five years, minimally, old age security is going to increase by $10 billion a year in annual spending. It won't get much attention. It'll just be seen as like something we already decided many years ago. But that same $10 billion could go to childcare. Why is it not? That's an interesting trade-off. And there don't need to be winners and losers on that front. We don't have to find trade-offs between our aging parents and their grandchildren. There are other ways for us to make the budget work for all generations. But if we don't have attention to the fact that trade-offs are being made, the talented MPs like you don't get to be as effective as you might otherwise be. And for those who are listening and thinking, okay, sure, the federal government's responsible for old age security and... Guaranteed income supplement that makes up over $55 billion a year. But surely provincial governments, in spending on childcare and in spending on education, which principally benefits younger Canadians in a serious way, that if you were to layer on provincial spending with that same generational lens, that it would net out in a fair way. Uh, no, the average spending per person in Canada, if you combine provincial and federal spending, allocates over $30,000 a year to person over 65 and around 13000 or less per person under 45. So there's a big spending gap uh, that goes on by age. That's partly to be expected. I don't want my mom to have to work, you know, into her senior lays to her last dying breath. I want her to have a secure, healthy retirement. And so our healthcare system and our old age security system contribute to that. But my my mom doesn't want our approach to paying for the things that give her a financially healthy, secure retirement to come at the expense of investing in her kids and grandchildren. And that has been the dynamic 
at provincial and federal tables that we have witnessed for pretty much my entire career of monitoring senior levels of government's budgets. That's why bringing in an intergenerational fairness lens to GVA plus and making it stronger and more robust can't be like generational washing or greenwashing. We really need to make this robust and get it right so that MPs can see some of the trade-offs that are being made. And the idea being, it's not this zero-sum game to say, well, maybe we can reduce old age security and spend more on childcare. The idea being where we are looking at new investments, we make sure that we are keeping this generational fairness consideration in mind, that when we are looking at spending a new dollar, climate action and childcare and making housing more affordable make eminent sense, given how much we already spend in our social safety net and beyond for older Canadians. And if we look to new spending, we should start to maybe tip the balance of new spending in favor of younger Canadians in a more significant way. I think that's right. I think we should be using our economic growth to the degree that we're going to have that to to be increasingly investing in our younger Canadians. And there are opportunities for us at this moment to not simply focus on income, but also to think about wealth issues. And an older demographic in particular has gained a lot of wealth from housing. We want them to benefit from that wealth. But as we're thinking about how they might want more pharma care, how they might want more extended care in their later years, how they might want more medical care, et cetera. But how can we invite Canadians who have gained wealth in certain parts of their lives to think about how that wealth could contribute to paying for the public services that they're looking for, as opposed to leaving the bills for their kids and grandchildren or saying, actually, we don't want to leave those bills for their kids and grandchildren. So to not leave the bills, we just won't invest in their kids and grandchildren. That's not a great trade-off. So leaving bills for kids and grandkids. We, we hear this a lot at different moments of our politics from more conservative quarters, but to say you're spending too much and the debt that you are incurring is leaving a burden for future generations. And in some ways you could look at it and you would say, well, it really depends upon what investments we're making. That you can't just say all spending is equivalent, that if we are spending on operational programs today without a material return for younger Canadians, then maybe there is fairness in the accusation. But if we're investing in childcare or climate action, or we're investing in infrastructure that is going to stand the test of time in a significant and meaningful way, then there is going to be a return for younger Canadians. And the investment then, especially with low interest rates, makes eminent sense. Kevin Page cautioned me, not everything's an investment. Politicians call everything an investment. When we look, though, at the accumulation of debt in this crisis and the accumulation of debt before this crisis, how does that factor into an analysis of generational fairness? Well, there are two different questions, so I'm going to handle them separately. I'm going to take your second one first. One of the frustrations that I will say that I have about the current federal government is that there was an openness to running relatively large deficits. And this is a moment where it's effectively saying we're willing to invest in things for people, but not ask people to pay for them now. And there's a cultural moment. This isn't just about our politicians. So I'm not punished. I'm not like critiquing politicians for this entirely. They're responding to the public and cultural mood. And right now we have a moment where Canadians are often saying, I want more from the my government, but I don't necessarily want to contribute more to the cost of doing so. 
I never thought that Canadians were the kind of people who wanted their cake, but not to contribute to paying for it. And I do worry at this moment that we are doing it. And then it does play out in an intergenerationally unfair way, because when we have these deficits that are contributing to then larger debt loads, and you know that's manageable right now at historically low interest, but those historically low interest rates aren't always going to be there. And the moment they're not there, then the price tag for people down the road is much larger because there's an opportunity cost. All that money we're now paying on the interest to the debt means we can't be adapting to what our new risk is likely going to be facing us, whether it's ongoing housing unaffordability or climate change, or we still haven't got it right for families, etc. So that it was intergenerationally unfair and problematic to be running those kinds of deficits consistently when we're not in a recession. With the one caveat I would maybe impose, depending upon what they're spent on, because exactly. if it's spent but- on climate action, then you're addressing the generational fairness. Completely agree with that. But if you look at what was driving your deficit, it was the rise in old age security. Right. And so, no, that is not uh, an investment necessarily there that is you know, doing it for younger Canadians. It's saying people who haven't prepaid into old age security, we're not going to have a conversation about how you didn't prepay into this. There's more of you now needing to claim it. And so what are we going to do in terms of covering that cost? When you come to the pandemic, it did make sense for this federal government to say we've not experienced something like this pandemic before and the way to prevent it is to have people socially distance. That social distancing required to stop the spread of the virus is going to crush the very things that make people healthy and well, their access to education, their access to jobs, their access to childcare, et cetera. And so how are we gonna compensate? And then we saw this amazing thing for the first time in my professional life, I have seen governments actually grow spending on the social determinants of health, on our income and the things that shape our conditions into which we're born, grow, live, work, and age. That's what makes us healthy, those conditions. And the government said, wow, we're at risk of eroding those conditions. We need to invest aggressively to address that. Well, we're also going to add some money to the medical care system to fight this illness issue. That was clever spending of course, it has now racked up a nearly $400 billion deficit in one single year, which I almost can't fathom as a public finance scholar. I've never seen it in my life. It's akin to what happened coming out of the Second World War. I think everybody is hoping that what we'll do is we're going to grow our economy so fast that that big annual deficit won't seem so problematic some years down the road. But that's very wishful thinking at this moment. Because the reason that we grew our economy so fast coming out of the Second World War is that the demographics were in our favor. We had this baby boom. We had a disproportionately young population at the highest moments of their productivity in the labor market with relatively few seniors. That's a great model for economic growth. We don't have that any longer. We have a bit of a distorted population pyramid, a bulge later in our lives. That doesn't mean my mother is a part of a problematic bulge. It's just that's what's happening with our population. But that doesn't allow for the kind of economy that's going to grow at four and five and six percent, which is what we had coming out of the Second World War. So we're at this complicated moment right now where we've incurred a really big deficit and done so to protect our entire population, especially those who are older from this risky virus. And we need to have a conversation about the revenue that we're going to collect in the years ahead to partly pay it back. Sure, we're going to try and grow our economy too. But now has to be the time where we talk more about revenue across the political spectrum. I want to know what the Conservative Party of Canada thinks is the best way to raise revenue, the most efficient way to raise revenue right now. I want to know what the Liberals think. I want to know what the NDP and the Greens think. Because we can't just have these large deficits without talking about what does that mean for our revenue going forward. What do you think about, I, I wrote an op-ed in the Star recently calling for a one-time tax on extreme wealth that 
the Library of Parliament projects would raise $70 billion, a 3% tax on net wealth over 10 million and a 5% tax on net wealth over 20 million. And then with a longer term view, looking at reforming the taxation of extreme wealth transfers, including inheritance taxation, but also looking at treating investment income more equitably to employment income. So in addressing the inclusion rate of capital gains and addressing dividend income, the government has said they're addressing stock options. There was a a line in the throne speech to say, and we'll look at additional ways to tax extreme wealth. I haven't seen proposals yet. Maybe there'll be a proposal in the budget. Maybe there won't be. What do you think about the measures that I just outlined? And would you add any measures that should be on the table? Yeah, I think that there are important measures that you just described. I think there's a sweet spot for framing this issue that actually we want to relieve pressure on taxes on earnings, especially earnings in the middle of the spectrum and the end of the lower incomes, those working hard to join the middle classes, the liberal tagline, relieve to some degree taxation there and kind compensate for it by going after what's really driving inequality in society, which is wealth accumulation, especially at the highest levels. But I don't, I don't want us to only focus on the 0.01% of society, like the uber, uber rich. That is a good way to raise some revenue. But I think you can look more at people like me who are more in like that kind of top 10-ish percent, especially given what's happened with housing. Housing prices rising above local earnings is crushing the way that hard work pays off. This is a particularly vicious kind of dynamic that's hurting a younger demographic and causing the middle class to erode. So I think we want to add housing wealth specifically to our conversation. And I think we want to say not just the, you know, the the, the top 1%, but how might we invite like the top 10-ish percent to contribute a little bit more? And that then gets at a much larger part of the population. And that can have also salutary signals in the housing system that, hey, you know, housing wealth above a certain level, like above a million dollars, let's say, I think that's, you know, that would get about uh, only about 9% of Canadians, myself included, have a home that's worth more than a million dollars. So ask us to contribute a little bit more in ways that don't put us at risk of losing our home until we want to sell it or it's going to be inherited. And that can signal to the housing system, hey, housing isn't the place where you go and you generate tons and tons of capital returns any longer. That's not what we were looking for, but it can be a place to call home. But we can, if we start to tax that a little bit more for those in the top 10%, then you can relieve taxes, whether it's sales taxes or taxes on earnings, uh, and or generate the revenue, pay the deficit we were talking about, invest in this green economy that is going to be so critical for younger generations going forward. It is literally the most important thing we can do to promote the health of today's young people and future generations. The World Health Organization says Climate change is the greatest risk to human health in the 21st century. And it continues to say that in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's raise dollars to do that. Let's get the childcare piece right. Let's get housing right. And let's more generally have budgets that work for all generations. You could have intelligent conversations about reforming old age security and the guaranteed income supplement. For example, many people may not know that old age security is, yes, phased out the more one earns, but it's at a quite a high threshold, all things considered. Yes. So someone earning $100,000 as a senior still receives yes. some amount of, of an unfunded benefit out of general revenues. And so you could imagine not taking away from seniors, you could imagine directing some of those dollars down to GIS in a more significant way. On the housing conversation, you could imagine, in addition to some of the measures we've discussed around investment properties, you could look at the 
way we treat capital gains of principal for principal residences and say over a million dollars we're not going to have the exemption or the longer you live in the home uh, the exemption will get phased in or what the us does where they have a, a i think an even lower cap on total capital gains exemption and yet these are kind of third rails when it comes to politics. In some respects, you are oh. you are raising two really difficult political issues, and you have even been, uh, and I say you, Jen Squeeze was even, I don't know what the right way of taking a task in some ways by CARP for even raising issues of generational fairness at all. That you are pitting those who are younger against those who are older. You're making it this zero sum game. H how do you respond to those concerns that just this conversation alone? Not let alone the third rails you might want to touch, but the conversation alone is problematic and pits Canadians of different ages against one another. Um, I would say that the systems in which we are living are pitting generations against one another. And groups like CARP, who are focused on advocating for those who are in retirement, and groups like Gen Squeeze, who are focused on advocating for our younger demographic, are in common cause wanting our systems to work for all generations. So the systems are broken, our voices are needed to draw attention to how the systems are broken. I don't know any grandmother who wants to leave anything other than a proud legacy for her kids and grandchildren. I don't know any Canadian grandchildren and, and, young, and kids who don't want their parents and grandparents to be well and healthy and happy and secure. So you put together Carp and Jen Squeeze's voice and you have voices trying to make our system work for all generations. That's the goal. The problem is we need to acknowledge right now that the systems are not working for all generations, whether it's our climate system and the way that we're managing that or our housing system or our system in investing across the age span. Those systems are not working fairly right now. Pointing that out doesn't pit generations against one another. Pointing that out creates an opportunity for the generations to come together to fix it. That's what we want. That's what you would do at your Thanksgiving table. You would, you would have all generations around that table. Not we desperate to get to that table in the middle of a pandemic. And we would want to make it work for one another. And I take hope in this moment of the pandemic where it is an amazing moment of intergenerational solidarity. As we build back better, that will be our model. How do we recognize when systems are being disrupted in ways that are harming different age groups in ways we don't really intend? And how can we make it better going forward so it works for young and old alike? I think that is a good place to end that notion of holding on to this idea of solidarity as much as we can going forward, I think is if we take anything from the pandemic, that would be a useful idea to hold on to for sure. Well, I appreciate your advocacy as always. I appreciate your time. And I have no doubt we will stay in touch. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, take good care. Now, I recorded this conversation with Paul earlier this week, and we will find out soon enough just how the federal government plans to prioritize childcare and housing in our federal budget. If you have questions, comments, ideas for guests, or anything really, you can always reach me at info at bey8.ca or on social media at bey8. I don't mention it often on the podcast, but we also on a bi-weekly basis do a live Q&A on Facebook, so you can always get me with questions there too. And again, you can learn more about Jen Squeezed at jensqueezed.ca. As always, thanks for joining, and until next time. <laughs>